right, so we're going to start off with the conference championship games. My favorite moment of it was Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift, out on the field after the game, hugging, walking along. He shoes Taylor away to hug his brother, and his brother says, you need to fucking finish this thing. Taylor got a little bit dissed there for the brother. I kind of like that. Yeah, after watching him, having to watch him shirtless in Buffalo. Yeah, that was, uh, that was awesome. Listen, I mean, Taylor Swift is a nightmare when it comes to dating anyway, and all of her songs are about how boys have broken her heart. So she is probably class A crazy when it comes to relationships. Yeah. So, I mean, good for Travis. Go, Travis. Family first. Family first. And she is playing three shows in Tokyo the Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night before the Super Bowl. Of Super Bowl. Are you a Swifty, Mark? I have three girls (laughs) who are are actually traveling overseas at some point for another of the Eros Tour shows. I've been told that potentially we're going to have to go see KK next summer in Europe mm. by uh, Cali. So I, I, there we go. I, I did. I did have to kind of <laughs> grin and bear it through the movie one night streaming. Ooh, I didn't. I, I didn't make the whole thing. I can. Tell I haven't. Uh, I haven't had to to do that. Now, real quick though, Dan Campbell. A lot of cri- criticism today. Went for it on fourth down. A few times there, didn't Down kick 10. field goals, didn't kick field goals. What do we think? I mean, he's always been aggressive, right? Yeah. He's a go for it. He has the most go for it than any coach in the NFL. And, and statistically, if you run the math, you should go for it on every fourth down. There's a high school coach, I think, in Arkansas, doesn't have a punter on the team. And just goes for it on every fourth down. He always onside kicks because uh, the statistics say you should do that. I think the reason coaches don't do that is they don't want to look stupid. Yeah. Even though the the stats say well, you should well, do it. One way to not be there is not give up a 17-point halftime lead on the road. Yeah. So. And that had more to do with the players than it did Dan Campbell. The one criticism I had, and it was funny because uh, – took 30 minutes this morning over to coffee to explain to the British girlfriend. But the one thing he did do wrong was the third and two from the goal line with, call it 50 seconds left, calling a running play, Mm -hmm. knowing that if it didn't work, it was going to burn the timeout. And that meant the only way you could tie the game is to get an onside kick, which is the lowest probability play in football. This is random, but I just had a flashback to, I don't know if you saw the recent SNL skit with, Nate Bargatz, where he's George Washington. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's it's it. hilarious. It's he's got all these grand visions for the new country, and one of them is we'll have our own system of weights and measures. And he talks about you know pounds and uh, nice. two thousand pounds will be a ton. Well, what will one thousand pounds be called? Nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he talks about you know unpopular sports like track and swimming will be measured in meters and kilometers. But sports like football will be measured in yards. <laughs> yards. Oh, that's well, great. How, how, how many feet, you know, how, uh, uh, how, how many, how many uh, feet in a yard? Of course, 12 inches in a foot, then therefore it must be 12, yard, or 12 feet in a yard. No, three feet. Yeah. <laughs> Forgot to Which funny. actually I can, I'm a, I'm I, I can walk. Man. I have an exact one yard um, 
stance when I when I walk something off. I've nice. learned it. Yeah. Because in golf, close. you have to know yeah. exactly sort of how far you are from There's something. There's such a great 12 inch. They have technology now. There I can't gotta be. make it. They have, a, they, have, they have technology now, but you can't use a rangefinder. No, you can't. I mean, especially when you're on the putting green. But but <laughs> when I was watching the game, I, I'm not sure if I like Brock Purdy or not. He He's kind of weak, but he's an underdog, and I like underdogs. They didn't look good in the first half. I can't believe they came back. I'm just saying. He he balled out. I will give this to uh, to Brock in the in the second half. I mean, he tucked the ball. He rushed for three yards less than uh, Lamar Jackson did in the game Dang. against Kansas City. So. Wow, impressive. Boy, that was, was a that was a bit of a meltdown yeah. in Baltimore. Yeah, no, that really the, was that killer interception. Oh, yeah. The uh, okay, Mark, kick us off. Let's talk LNG because I think of the stories Damn. last week. That was the one that kind of just and we're trying to get we're trying reaction. to get Toby Toby Rice to comment. Yeah, so we might if Toby if, had a great tweet. We'll throw the tweet up on uh, the video here, and hopefully Toby will we'll get, get a video something. from him yeah. for the show. Yeah, it's. <clears throat> The White House sent out an announcement last week just basically saying pending projects, uh, pending LNG export projects are going to be paused for the foreseeable future in order to assess the environmental and economic impact. So what I thought they said, maybe maybe I read it wrong, was pending projects are okay if you're in the permitting process. That's what's getting paused. Right. Okay. Yeah, they're yeah, yeah. they're they're going. So to if you're building right now and stuff, you're okay. But because it's really hard, if you're thinking <clears throat> about it. It's really hard to stop once something's in construction. You do have phases where they do inspections, and that can be slowed down, as I've currently been aware of, um, with a personal project. But I think it's really permitting is where most of the action happens. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I I uh, I commented on a bit of a. A sidebar, but I'd seen some discussion or some something was published on on Saudi developing their big shale gas project, Al Jafara, which is in the eastern desert, and the projections are they're going to be at 2.2 BCF a day and over 600,000 barrels of NGLs and condensate by 2030. And if you remember back in October, they did put a $500 million minority investment into mid-ocean, which has got in a seeking stakes, and I think four Australian LNG projects. So another global player in the LNG market's looking to press full steam ahead, and you know we're continuing to to contemplate our naval on things that you know could potentially have longer term kind of structural market share mm -hmm. so implications. Gonna, I'm going to speak for BDE because I think we're all on board with this. So basically, we are free market in nature. Let's build projects. Let's let them stand or fall based on the economic uh, realities of, of what happens. We're also, I think we would all agree, we can't really foresee the future. And so sitting here making these long-term predictions of, oh, well, you know, Europe's not going to need LNG, so let's not build it. We're like, let markets decide, generally speaking. Is 
So we would be, hey, we've got these permitting pr policies, procedures in place. If people want to build, knock yourself out. Is there actually a legitimate reason on the other side that we should be pausing LNG permitting? I don't think there's any energy security reason. I mean, we've got an absolute boatload of natural gas from both dry gas sources and associated gas. And because U.S. crude production increasingly is dependent upon the ability to process and handle and, and take away gas, such yeah. as the Permian Basin, which is now at 17 BCF a day of mostly associated gas, you, know, you run into, I guess, a confinement problem where you can't, you, you can't do anything with the gas at, at some point. Right. I mean, fields get limited on their ability Storage, to yeah. process and handle gas. And if the economics aren't there, you're not going to build build the expansion infrastructure to, that's to handle what that. Because that's what the opponents are trying to say is it's a natural resource. If we build all the projects, I think I saw a number. Somebody was saying that would be 15 or 20 percent of the daily gas volumes we'd be exporting and that people don't need it now. That's at least the, the argument I've seen back. It, and I think you just you know, refuted that very eloquently. And, and I've seen kind of an intermingled narrative, if you will, about, um, you know, Europe is not going to be needing as much going forward. So why is that, Mark? <laughs> not well explained. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a few, there's a few more. But if you have, if you have options from Qatar and Saudi and other places that are going full steam ahead, then again, seeding market share and the economics from a, a U.S. producer and, and exporter might ultimately not work. But the market will will decide that. I mean, where where have we not seen in these big infrastructure buildouts where things get overbuilt, you know, returns on capital get eroded, mm -hmm. and the market ultimately takes care of it? Yeah, two things I would say is. $2 gas tells you that it's probably not that significant a national treasure <laughs> that needs to be hoarded. That's kind of number one. I hate to go back to Adam Smith. Number two, tell me what the weather's going to be like the next five years in Europe. Because that's right. The only reason mm. they have skated by is we've had two very, very warm winters in Europe, although it did not feel like that when I was over on the island. Didn't feel like, yeah, didn't feel like cold. that here. But. I mean, there's a few, there's a few things. There, there's one is you have, sure, we could redirect the gas to the n entire Northeast, but the Northeast doesn't want the gas, so they're actually continuing to use fuel oil to to warm uh, the Northeast. So what do you do with the gas? On a international perspective, it's bigger than just looking internally. We are trying to keep the dollar strong as, I mean, our economy is dependent upon the rest of the world. And the less that, the more we lose market share in gas, the, the really it puts a harder burden on the United States to be competitive. And that's the bigger issue. Yeah. That's a concern that we're not, we're letting others get market share globally. That's a problem. Well, and, and the, the other thing too, is if we're not maximizing markets, we destroy the <coughs> infrastructure that creates that market, i.e. we lay down rigs, people get fired, right. et cetera, <coughs> and you don't want to kill that capability. We've all been through a pandemic where we didn't have certain capabilities in the United States, and it really, really sucked. I mean, w w you know, we're, we're, we're shutting down LNG, but we're, we're 
on, on hyperdrive, we're importing fentanyl. So, I mean, let's put it in perspective. <laughs> let's see. So, well, and, and it's, you know, it's ultimately a win for coal globally. globally. That's true. This right. is true. So, and we hate coal. And, and we've yeah. shown we've shown over the course of the last fifteen or twenty years what the substitution of gas for coal does from an emission standpoint. I love how and that, oil and, and, and gas and that travels. Like, it's that so travels. much better for the environment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're environmentalists when it comes to coal. Yeah, exactly. And, and if I lived I'd, in West Virginia, I'd be so pro coal. I'd be a coal miner. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've said as far Coal back as daughter. your yeah. energy draft from a Son. couple of years ago that, you know, natural gas and just given the endowment that North America has and particularly the U.S. all the way up to the North Slope is you can play offense and defense strategically over the long haul with natural gas just given the, the strength and advantages we have and the know-how. Um, so you know, geopolitics we'll s- change when you can tell other people screw you. Right, it really does. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point, Mark. All right. Speaking of, well, one other point I want to make on LNG. Let's talk U.S. politics. Clearly, this was Biden to the base. That's not fired up about him. Hey guys, I'm here, environmentalists. We're going to do this pause. <laughs> Throwing a little bit of red meat to them. I also think it was kind of 3D. I think they're more vegetarian, Chuck. So let's, like, (laughs) easy. There we go. Fair enough. What's that fake meat called? Yeah, Beyond Meat. Beyond. Hey, they're a little Beyond Meat. They're a little Beyond Meat. meat. Beyond (laughs) Meat Porterhouse, right? Duly corrected on that. I was watching some reality show with my wife. It was hilarious. And and, uh, it was there in California. And and one person says the other, like, oh, I want to have a steak. He's like, you're eating red meat? It's like, yeah, what's wrong with that? Because everyone knows red meat's bad for you. And, mm-hmm. ha- and he's like, how so? And the, g- the the guy had no reply. Like, well, everyone just knows it's bad for you. <laughs> yeah, it's just good just data. Is. Good the, data source. The proverbial they said. They said. They say. Everyone knows red meat's hey, bad for you. Hey, before we leave it, it, I feel like your headgear has got some kind of tie-in to this this LNG story. Could you I don't know. I'm, just, I'm wearing it correctly, so according to <laughs> Digital Wildcatter. I always looked so bad in the, in the hard hat. I was like, no pictures, please. First time, first you, and only You look like a financial guy life. out on location. I'm a suit. Yeah, exactly. I'm just scared that the ceiling's going to, you know, cave in on us. So. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the I think the other thing this did, too, is basically the shot across the bow of, hey, guys, we can just pause permitting here. If that causes one investor to look at a project and go, eh, a little too much risk there, then that's a victory well, for the environmentalists. I mean, and that's part of it. Well, this. If, 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 if anyone ever argues the old adage from long ago that political risk in the U.S. is low or lower. Yeah. I mean, it, we've, yeah, I think no that's, been, that's in some cases been turned on its head. I mean, speaking of throwing red meat, but, but what happened over in France in the Louvre? The Mona Lisa. And what did they throw at the Mona Lisa? The Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa, which, I mean, I don't think she's that pretty, but, you know, it's one of our, you know, world treasures. Yeah, arguably the most famous painting on the planet. And what happened to it? Soup. They threw soup. Was (laughs) it vegetarian soup or not? We need to know. It it looked like their standard tomato soup. I I didn't see a close-up of the video. Did someone die? uh, Did some animal die in in that suit that's what i want to know so, so 
we can do this on another show and i've talked a little bit about the podcast the rogan podcast that taylor sheridan did with rogan not too long ago and they talk about this very thing obviously sheridan and his four sixes ranch and mm-hmm. they're big in the beef business but they talk about the actual just utter destruction of life that goes into some of these farming operations, uh, particularly in California, where I said you drive through the San Joaquin Valley, what what don't you see? You don't see any birds mm. because of all the things that they kill for these these groves and and the whole. You know, I, I learned that I think every almond on an almond tree consumes 10 gallons of water in its production. Yeah. So we we do have to give him we do have to give him props cuz the funniest thing we were just sitting in the office and Colin's in there and we were saying, "Hey, what happened with the lube? They threw soup on it." And Colin's walking by. "Change the way I view oil and gas, that's for sure." <laughs> That was awesome. Well, he's young and impressionable. So. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Perfect. So, yeah, I don't get this stuff, but you know, I guess I you know, I guess it's the uh the echo chamber for the environmentalists. They go, "Yay, we threw soup at the at the Mona Lisa." But well, the Louvre had to have been in on it because how can you I mean, they had if you watch the video which we're going to post, they kind of just had free reign at this at this painting. Yeah. They walked in. They and threw, it's not the first time. It's not the first time. Anything. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So I don't get it. The uh, Let's stay over in Europe. So, Kirk, this is your story. Activists are going in all these different directions. BP's getting sued. I never thought I'd ever feel sympathy for BP. I might even feel sympathetic for them. I What's mean, going on? interesting. Be careful. L- London Hedge Fund <laughs> Bluebell, which, you know. Not the ice cream. London Hedge Fund Bluebell called for the abandonment of irrational strategy that has depressed BP's shareholder value. So basically what they're telling BP is that they're concerned that they're reducing their oil and gas production. And they made a pledge to reduce it. Uh, Originally, Bernard Looney, who's no longer there, CEO, a pledge to reduce oil and gas production by 40%. They've dialed that back to 25% by 2030 compared to 2019 levels. And the hedge fund is saying you're destroying shareholder value by moving away from hydrocarbons faster than society. And the reality is, is BP is trying to move towards um, renewable projects, which would have lower returns. So this is basically a story about the shareholders coming back with a vengeance saying, you're not going to destroy this company and we're going to come after you. So you're seeing this, the tide turn. Because this is on the heels of the, what was it, a $600 million write-down in their solar renewables business That's by correct. BP. And if you look at Exxon, Total, Chevron, Shell, and BP, BP is trading at the lowest multiple compared to all of them. And it's been that way for a while. For a long time. And, and so, you know. Because remember what BP, remember BP meant beyond petroleum. They've uh, been yeah. sort of. I mean, Macondo was another one of these like hiccups, but their whole strategy to be get ahead of the society in the market has really depressed their shares, and and investors are starting to speak uh, louder than um, 
than before. W- which stands in contrast to one thing we talked about last week, which is Exxon going the court route to try and get resolutions related to scope three knocked off the um, right the proxy. Traditionally, you go through the SEC because it usually was an unbiased. I mean, government unbiased. I mean, whoa, excuse me. Let me pause for a moment, but. It was a strategy. Um, however, in the recent administration, it's become more of a kangaroo court. And as a result, Exxon's going a sort of what they think is going to be a better strategy by using the courts. Let, let, let's bring up some, I think, relevant and pretty current statistics. If you <coughs> remember Bobby Tudor at Fuse said the total capital spent by the top seven majors mm-hmm. top s- seven producers is i think 122 billion dollars yeah it's at 130 billion 130 billion there, something like that yeah we spend a trillion order of magnitude on renewables last year that needs to be according to proponents 3x that Five so if it needs that, to be yeah, 3x that if yeah. it's three trillion if those seven put all of their capital budgets into renewables you're down in the high twos so it's always i get why they're the really the lightning rod for needing to make these as bp is proving way too fast pivots but does it really matter given the magnitude of capital that is at stake here or on the table to affect this transition and so I think, as we were discussing before the show, you know, how absurdly uh, irrational does it look to look at companies that have been fighting to comp- uh, to generate competitive returns over 100-plus years right? and then all of a sudden expecting that that would be an, a good investment case for a hard pivot into something where they particularly don't have uh, a raw materials and manufacturing cost advantage for sure, because of the you know the Chinese lead in a lot of uh, right. a lot of the segments of of renewables. So, and the the thing that always gets me too is I've never been able to wrap my head around the well energy companies are just so greedy. All they care about is profits. <laughs> I guarantee you this: if it was more profitable to put up a wind turbine. Nobody wants to drill a well. I mean, there's some people that want to just for the sake of it. But at the end of the day, if they could make more money doing renewables, they would just do it. You can't have it both ways. You can't say they're greedy and making all this profits and then turn around and say, well, renewables are actually cheaper, and that's the reason they should make their hard pivot. There's there's one thing that we know has been proven, and Milton Friedman said in 1970 article, the social responsibility of business is to maximize profits. And when you don't do that, you're going to get fired or shareholders will move their shares, their money to somebody else that will. And that's End of story. That's foundational to limited liability in U.S. markets. That's right. Right. That's the trade-off is that your singular focus is on maximizing shareholder value and profitability. Well, and the bottom line is we have, in effect, a dictator that can do whatever they want, and the Chinese are still 
building a lot of coal plants. That's right. So, so you, I, I don't, and they're building a lot of renewables too, but it's not cheaper. And, and their control of the raw materials through processing, and in some cases, finished product supply chain, supply chain is a huge competitive advantage over kind of this multi multi-decade period of time. I heard one thing I was listening to Dan Jurgen on another podcast on COBT uh, last week, and he was he was giving a lot of perspective from Davos. But one of the things he talked about, and they, uh, S and P is and Jurgen have done work on on copper in the in the recent past. But he was talking about the processing aspect. You know, it's one thing to site the mines and dig the stuff out of the ground, but the processing aspect of it is obviously hugely important. I think the comparative statistics between the U.S. and China, the U.S. has five operating copper smelters. China has 55 and growing. And really kind of a, maybe the realistic or cynical takeaway depending on your Copper's used mindset. to basically everything, by right. the way. But this, the cynical mindset is we, we've got less than a snowball's chance in hell to accelerating the permitting timeline for building things in this country like copper smelters, which use a lot of thermal energy as far as I know. They're pretty energy intensive. So, you know, a lot of heat, a lot of heat. How are we, how are we, how are companies like BP and Exxon that operate in Western markets that have a lot of regulatory and political hurdles to do the things that I think you need to be competitive in actually building a bulletproof supply chain from cost perspective and mm -hmm. a resource security perspective. How do we do that if we can't build and operate critical components in that supply chain right. to make all that happen? You know, you control it from well permitting, go out and drill and complete a well. You may own the gathering and processing. You may own the downstream and the, and the marketing. You know, it gives us a huge mm -hmm. advantage in the in this business, but that's developed over 150 years. And again, the the trying to trying to pivot and make something happen within a 25 year time frame that's taken us naturally when we go through these these evolutions of energy, which take over a century. It it really seems to be a bit a bit of a mismatch in terms of what we can reasonably do and what we emotionally want to do. Well, and the problem I have, getting back to what we do here on BDE, being part of the media, is why aren't we held account? Why aren't why, why aren't the environmentalists held accountable for that? Okay, this is your view of the world. How are we going to get the copper? Where are we going to do it? Can we mm -hmm. talk about it? Instead, if I say on here I don't believe in global warming, YouTube's going to shut down this video. And no one in the media will just gently push back. Show me your plan. You know, I'd love to see how we're going to have all these electric vehicles and all these minerals. Where are they going to be? We don't ever see that. Ph physics and chemistry and thermo are. I mean, the reality ruthless is disciplinarians. The yeah. protesters are usually funded by someone that they don't have jobs and they run around using some billionaire's, you know, uh, budget. To, to do these things while the rest of us are working. I mean, it's yeah. that's the reality. Um, here's another funny story. I've been, we'll probably spend more time next week talking about it, but I just wanted to introduce it. This is hilarious to me. So nuclear is, is, is back, right? 
People yeah. are like, we need nuclear because it's a cheap base load, relatively safe. Who's the top nuclear um, developer? It's a France. Co it's a French company, EDF. So they've been building. So they have a project that actually Macron, when he was uh, finance minister, Britain's been trying to build a nuclear plant, Hinkley Point, and. It's construction started in 2017. They're expect to finish in 2025, but it's a way over budget. It's $13 billion over budget. What's funny is we have left nuclear construction up to the French. The French clearly cannot do anything <laughs> efficiently. And so it's almost hilarious because um, the, the whole future of nuclear is in the hands of the French. And they're great at it. For, I mean, they do dominate nuclear but they just can't build anything on time and there's a project in in normandy there's a project in finland and in china where everything's way over budget and it's edf that's behind it and they're way in debt but um so it'll be interesting to track nuclear over the next few years on the show as we've been talking about it's coming back but when you think about who's actually building these plants and you realize it's a french company and they're <laughs> in trouble um we'll, we'll we'll be tracking that story well we get, we got to <laughs> We got to be careful about the glass house. What's the project in Georgia that is? Hey, <laughs> I'm not saying that you wanted more, you wanted more pushback between right. us. There so here, we go. Here you got it. So yeah. I I don't think the story is any any rosier in the U.S. Although I did see something. I didn't read the full article that there was a a headline that at least it. Uh, conceptually being discussed of maybe having a, a small modular reactor at the University of Illinois Champaign. Okay. So yeah. to your vision, your future right. of that was Mark Rosano on the policy draft, micronuclear. Right, micronuclear. Right. But this was a, a headline around a university. Yeah. System. Yeah. Talking about. SMRs as a potential alternative. I mean, SMRs has been sort of last <coughs> four years has been adventure's dream. You know, let's right. go. Let's well, go where, where did the first where did the first actual reaction take place? Just up the road in Chicago, under the this is true. Yeah, you know, Amos Alonzo State I mean, football field at the University of Chicago. What I can't right. speak to now that I'm I dog the French here for a second, and I love French food and I love their wine, and I, um, is that this could be all. Um, based on permitting, I, it might not actually be. I mean, it might be just yeah. all the things around nuclear versus we just don't know how to build things. It could be all of the other things. I mean, I know in London, I mean, in, in the UK, the Hinkley project, a lot of it is, you know, delays based on not only financing, but public sentiment. And that's going to be interesting to watch. So there's a guy, and I'm looking it up <coughs> right now to see if I can uh, find it. Uh, yeah, there's a podcast called Titans of uh, Nuclear, and it's a guy who was uh, just a student at MIT and wanted to hear about nuclear. So he just started calling all these big dogs in nuclear, and he didn't think he would get a phone call back. And everybody's like, yeah, I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> <coughs> he, w in one of his episodes, one of the folks talking about nuclear was saying the problem is is the first one is almost from scratch, right? Because we're not building these on a regular basis. Right. And so if you actually wanted to do these cost-effectively, you'd get the industry together, you'd choose one format, 
and you just start replicating it. And the first one would cost ten, the second one would cost six, third one yeah. would cost four, and eventually you'd get it down to two. But that's that's the problem is, you know, we built all these things back in the seventies, right? And everything's changed: technology, permitting, public sentiment, all that. So you're literally building all this stuff from scratch. Interesting. Yeah. Although, I will give my people in Britain some credit. They are actually playing 4D chess right here. You know what they're doing? They're slowing nuclear so that we're going to delay, so we have enough in global warming because with two, a degree and a half, two more degrees, the greatest champagne region in the world is going to move north into England. Dang. The French will will be second-rate citizens when it comes to wine. Dang. With two more degrees. Wow. That's what they're doing. They're this, the is, th- this is this is this is this is, this is the war. The war is back. Yeah, the war is back. The war is back. We're gonna fight it through grapes. So not through tennis. It's now moving to grapes. It's moving to grapes. I like it. The uh, so one other thing since we're on we're on funny stuff, the electric vehicle buses. My goodness, man! This so is you, you were giggling. So I mean, I've honors. been giggling because um, all these cities around the United States and, and and Canada have been purchasing these EV electric vehicle buses. And there's one company called Proterra that's been the primary manufacturer, and they went bankrupt in August. So um, I've just sort of been tracking um, through our friend Energy Absurdity, uh, David Blackman. Um, this is sort of the, the list. Asheville, North Carolina, out of five buses out of the fleet, three are out of commission because it's broken and they have an irreparable door and it's going to cost like $40 million to fix just the door. Stockton, California, six out of 17 buses are not operating um, and they have charging issues. Duluth, Minnesota, um, they're experiencing issues with cracked chassis and inability to climb steep hills and Proterra is no longer doing anything, so they can't get help. South Philadelphia, buses are stopping due to cracked chassis. Can't fix them. Uh, Edmonton, Alberta, they purchased 60 buses, most of which are not running. Jackson Hole, Wyoming, all eight purchased buses broke down at some point. Two uh, were fixed and running as of December. So they've, they've sort of bought into the EV dream of public transportation and they're having it's a nightmare not only were the buses five to ten times more expensive than a regular ice bus but they're screwed and proterra is bankrupt so so they're oems out of business they're oems out of business so uh a lot of uh people's tax dollars um kind of wasted on, on that front it's it's interesting to watch i mean the the fever was was high, and, was high and per chance are we having to go back and use older buses that aren't <laughs> as emissions efficient as maybe newer buses might have been? Yeah. Well, this so, is the, you know, similar example. We've talked broadly about all the hope around S curves all over the place where you run into the reality of doing things in the physical world like building cars. It's really hard to do. And accelerating physics is is i think proven to be in some cases a fool's errand the worst the worst analogy out there is software because relatively speaking software code is easy to write 
and you can you can True. and it builds upon mm-hmm. itself over time and so you truly can have when you think technology and you think software based stuff you truly can have s curve type acceleration on stuff but to your point what physical stuff I mean, yeah, building cars is hard. Yeah, and we we've been doing that for 125 years with Build, building wind turbines. If you haven't done it before and installing them on time uh, on budget is hard. Yeah, if that's not your totally. core business yeah. and you don't have a lot of reps <laughs> doing it, so totally. I mean, just look back, look back at any like an old refrigerator. I mean, they've gotten a lot better over time. You know, it just yeah. Yeah, but it never pays to repair appliances of any kind anymore. They're designed to fail, so you have to replace them every, yeah. what, five to seven years. Yeah, we made that choice in the United States. Although I have a 20-year-old refrigerator, so it's still humming along. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mark, real quick, let's close the uh, show out with oil. What's going on with oil markets? There was hedge funds, crude, short covering, Yeah, I mean, you just that. had, in paper markets, you just had a flurry of short covering last week and so we've seen support in ti move into the mid to upper 70s um there's still all the crosswinds of you know particularly the conflicts and worries crop up about um you know is is the chinese engine going to continue to accelerate from here you know still a lot of concern around around demand although opec came out i think last week and and strengthened its demand outlook for 2025, reiterated 2024, which is over two and a half million barrels a day. Um, I haven't seen what the IEA said. So th- this is maybe a bit of momentum on the back of, you know, NYMEX inventories really, uh, really starting to precipitously fall. And so that, that inventory still remain a very important uh, physical indicator. Um, that that drives trading behavior, and so I I think um, we're not based upon the the sideways nature of the equities. We're we're uh, we're certainly not kind of all clear up and to the right. But um, we did see a flurry of mostly short covering last week that was pretty supportive yeah. of TI. Um, it, it's going to be interesting as the as the upstream companies, the EMPs, start to report here. That um, on the heels of what Schlumberger and Baker Hughes had said, you know, internationals looking pretty solid, you know, a few percentage points of growth. Um, the the early pronouncements or the forecast for 2024 for uh, for North America is uh, flat to down in terms of spending and activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how against the backdrop of you know kind of recent commodity strength falling inventories what uh what the upstream companies have to say about what their spending outlook is for 2024 mm-hmm. so that's coming here in the next over the ne- course of the next few weeks the interminable fourth quarter end of year reporting season that seems to last all the way into march yeah because i'll s- i'll get this stat totally wrong and one of y'all to correct me but i believe what is it there are 10 to 12 financial barrels on the planet for each barrel of production daily I think it's, yeah, that I, I think right. it's how the, right. the, map, yeah, the, the map works that out. sounds right, but I'm yeah. not going to hang yeah, my well, on We'll it. go look it up and actually correct, but it's something to that magnitude. So you truly can have these disconnects, but at some point you're right, fundamentals matter. So um, 
Okay. Refresher from last week. The girlfriend pointed out, because uh, she read an article in The Economist, that seven out of the ten most populous nations are going to the polls in 2024. So two billion people in 70 countries are going to vote this year. So it really is 2024. Mm -hmm. And geopolitically, even some of the non populous countries, but important ones like Great Britain, um, who else? Mozambique, the European Parliament, Azerbaijan, they're going to, Congo, they're going to have elections. Congo's election was December of 2023. <coughs> Next week, we will cover it for, let's say, five minutes because um, some, some interesting things happened. And obviously, with what we were talking about today, all the mineral, all the precious yep. metals from Congo, we need to watch this stuff. So there are going to be some, some wild things this year. Um, one, one that she pointed out was just AI use in fraud for elections. And in the New Hampshire primary, there, was actu there were actually reports of Joe Biden's voice calling, saying, please don't vote in the primary. Don't write my name in. Just don't worry about it. And that was a fraudulent call. So yeah, a lot, right. lot of interesting and, stuff. And in the U.S., we've got the continuing sideshows that are the primary season for the Republicans. I don't know if you guys saw, was it Friday, the – judgment came out against Trump in the E. Jean Carroll case, I think in a in comp million eighty three point three million, yeah. I think was the number. So uh, and on the heels of things like that, his popularity continues to rise. Yeah. <laughs> which is I really thought when he said the the John McCain thing about, you know, I like heroes that aren't captured, I thought that was the end of it. So I I have no barometer in terms of being able to hear something he says and figuring out how the populace is going to react to it. So, anyway, appreciate everybody tuning in to the uh, show. Make sure you forward it, leave some comments on it, and peace out. <laughs>